Hi, I'm Larry Reed, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm Doug Stewart, your host, and I have special guests with us, Ed Knoll. Ed is the professor of economics and business at Westmont College and president of the Association of Christian Economists. His current research includes work on the value of property rights and contract enforcement in the developing world from a Christian perspective, particularly with respect to securing the property of the working poor from land grabs and encouraging small business among the poor. He is also the co-author of a book, Counting the Cost, Christian Perspectives on Capitalism, and he is here today to talk with us about capitalism and consumerism. Ed, thanks for joining us. Glad to be here. Thanks, Doug. Yeah, so capitalism has, and it's not lately, I was about to say lately, but capitalism has gotten a bad rap. And I think partly, at least from the Christian angle, it is critiqued. And you read the critique and you're thinking, I don't, that doesn't quite seem right as a person who embraces capitalism. And I would label what they're describing and disdaining, sort of rightly, as more consumerism. And I think that's kind of inherent in some of the critiques. And I don't, I don't think those things have to go together. Uh, I know you don't think those things do either. So how would you define consumerism? And do you think we live in a society that's excessively consumptive? Well, consumerism, I would see, is um, very much tied to sort of a need for acquisition, for, to always to get more, uh, to um, never being satisfied sort of with the material goods that uh, go beyond satisfying our need for food, clothing, and shelter, and, but uh, continually only, always wanting to acquire more. I, I don't uh, necessarily associate or tie in consumerism exclusively to capitalism. And I think that is a mistake to sort of identify uh, those two or to say that consumerism is inherently a part of capitalism. Uh, one way to think about capitalism is to compare it let's say it's forms uh, in, around the world in terms of a portion of the, the consumer economy that occupies a capitalist economy's GDP. We think of the U.S., 70% or so of our economy is uh, preoccupied with household spending in various forms, durable goods, non-durable goods, and of course, especially services. Uh, you go to Northeast Asia and that percentage is not as high uh, over 50%. But nonetheless, uh, uh, the consumption uh, portion of the economy helps drive the engine of those capitalist economies. But the, the reality is that, uh, as we've talked about this uh, drive to acquire what uh, earlier Christian thinkers even spoke of as a kind of avarice, a, a lust after more goods, that it precedes uh, capitalism. It's pre-capitalist. It's uh, it goes as far back as the feudal uh, world, uh, the medieval world of the 10th, 11th, 12th centuries, uh, if not further back. And so uh, clearly uh, that's, uh, we wouldn't characterize the European uh, economies of the feudal era as capitalist. It's a pre-capitalist era. And, and yet uh, we can think about concerns about consumerism, at least dating to then. 
Yeah, I mean, it seems like the problem, you know, pre- it's it's part of the human problem to want to have more in a way that's unhealthy and spiritually damaging, if you will. I wonder what percentage of the the 70% is, you know, consumer spending is spending on things we quote unquote don't need versus spending things on just, you know, well, we need to live. I mean, the the spend it, I you know, I you bought I bought food today at the grocery store. Uh-huh. I need that. Um, you know, I may not have needed, you know, to buy the highest priced item. Uh, I could have bought something less expensive. And so I could have been satisfied with more or I'm sorry, I could have been satisfied with less uh, and save the money or whatever. So I'm kind of like, maybe there's no data on that, but like, I wonder if people would say, oh, well, yeah, of course it drives the economy, but you know, we we could survive on, on less. I'm thinking of course the critics of capitalism. And, and certainly, um, there are those who uh, would prefer that we return to a simpler lifestyle. Um, and and there's, some of them are among the Christian community and uh, would see uh, less of a proclivity to uh, avarice or uh, excessive acquisition there. I suppose I could speak from the standpoint of my discipline of economics, and economists are uh, much prefer to speak in terms of wants and don't want to... Uh, sort of make a judgment as to what are needs because uh, needs differ subjectively from one person to another uh, in terms of their satisfaction as do wants. And so um, the, the, th- the fact of the matter is, though, even in a, um, again, the pre-capitalist era when we had, uh, we could say people, the vast majority of the world living in subsistence, which is really true unless you were a part of a, uh, uh, sort of the uh, royal uh, element of society, or you benefited from being a slave master, that sort of thing. The vast majority of the world, whichever continent you want to look in, up until uh, the era of the early uh, 19th century, as the Industrial Revolution really m- begins to make headway, lived at subsistence. And uh, there were those that did uh, consume in excess at times. But uh, largely, people were uh, concerned with having their needs met, and uh, for the for the typical person anyway, and um, th- their lifestyle wasn't characterized by uh, excessive pursuit of wants. Do you think as Christians critique things around us about the culture that you know ought to be spoken out against? I mean, we we could of course could speak out against greed, and we can speak out against gluttony, and you know any anything that we could think of as that's worth you know that's part of our Christian calling and mission to reach out and call people to repentance and things like that. Is there a? It seems to me that like the Ron Siders and the Jim Wallaces of the world, they want to call out the sins of capitalism. They want to call out the sins of you know greedy people doing this or that. Um, is there is there room for that to as Christians to call out excessive excessiveness in ways that are not healthy? I, I think there is a place for that, although I wouldn't share their um, linking of that. Uh, idea of excess inherently, um, again, associated with a market economy, with a market-driven economy. Um, and another kind of critic uh, uh, is um, Daniel Bell or, or his uh, colleague, William Kavanaugh, who, you know, sort of see our desires distorted by, towards excess acquisition by the capitalist economic system. And uh, I would suggest, again, with, with any economic system, that uh, bent within uh, fallen human nature can be um, can be driven by the economic system. That, uh, that whether it's socialists, whether it's a mixed 
system, whether it's in a strong welfare state. Um, but yes, there is a place, I think, for Christian values to repent. And that's part of this uh, essay you mentioned uh, in the Counting the Cost book that I wrote on um, Christianity and con- capitalism and consumerism, in which I argue that we should, as Christians, delight in both creation and the responsibilities of affluence. And I think that part of it really speaks to your question. Uh, to what degree do we have a responsibility uh, of affluence recognizing, particularly in the synoptic gospels, the warnings about the spiritual hazards associated with wealth, a responsibility to use it wisely. And I pair those two in the subtitle of this piece because I see scripture affirming the celebration of creation, a celebration of creativity and affluence, but at the same time, uh, an emphasis on stewardship particularly toward those who are without. And that's why I spend a portion of the piece on uh, the example from this of the Synoptic Gospels of Luke chapter 12 with the parable of the individual who has built a lot of barns for himself because their crops, his crops are so productive. Have you noticed that the, I've seen sort of an irony or maybe a contradiction in the sort of anti-capitalist mentality is that they seem to use phrases like limited resources and they have this outlook that we would classify as sort of zero sum outlook on the resources, natural resources of the earth. And at the same time, they often talk about, you know, they make these claims that, you know, we shouldn't have poverty because there's enough going, there's enough to go around. And, uh, you know, we have this plentiful, you know, there's enough to go around in the world, but at the same time, they, <laughs> on the other side of the flip, the flip side, they, they're like talking about limited resources. And it just seems very common that there's a zero sum outlook on the world when they have that. Is that, does the zero sum thing just really infiltrate their, their analysis? I think you're uh, very much onto something, that, Doug, there, that there is a, a bit of a contradiction in um, that take and, and emphasizing a zero-sum perspective, a fixed economic pie, where one person's gain comes at the uh, loss of the others exactly, so that, that one person's gain means the other's uh, resources are diminished by that amount. Um, I think that way that they would want to attempt to resolve that contradiction, speaking of someone like particularly uh, uh, Jim Wallace, is um, toward redistribution. The fact that um, we have uh, over half of the U.S. income distribution today, the Census Bureau reports, uh, in the hands of the top 20%, well, that's inherently unfair. That gain must have come at the expense of those in the bottom, particularly the bottom two quintiles, bottom 40%. And so we've got to have redistribution. In fact, Jim Wallace says that uh, inequality is the call of the Old Testament prophets uh, to resolve inequalities of rich and poor. I don't read um, the prophets that way, Um, uh, and I wrote a piece on this in the Southwestern Journal Theology, that really what they're talking about is uh, oppression of the poor, violence towards the poor, appropriation of their property. that that's what the prophets are speaking out against, not inequality per se. And so I think their attempt to resolve that contradiction, which I agree with you, is there. I don't concur is really, in fact, uh, either A, uh, supported by the idea of a zero-sum world, because we don't live in a zero-sum world as, as long as we emphasize freedom of people to create, and, and which I think is part of being made in the image of God, and uh, freedom to exchange. 
And then B, I think, again, the scriptures don't emphasize um, a certainly in the Old Testament prophets a need to resolve inequality per se. I do think, I would say this, that a zero-sum worldview among the uh, Greco-Roman world in first century Palestine was pervasive because in the Roman world, the uh, publicans and the tax gatherers would oppress the poor peasant, poor landholders, and those who worked on the field through the tax system, and they associated the gains of the wealthy and those associated with the Roman government who had privileges from them with tapping into the poor. But that's not inherent in a market economy, though. That's that's where I would uh, differ. Yeah, it seems to me that a lot of the analysis, and, and I think we're all probably guilty of this if we don't do deep contextual studies um, and possibly even you know further than just that. But I think we're guilty as interpreters that to assume, and it's pretty pretty easy to do, and I don't think it's that egregious at first until you base your whole theology on it, uh, that the world in which we're reading the text and understanding the text was is similar to our own. And so when there's critiques of rich, of rich people, uh, it's just taken as such that, oh, well, rich people must be bad, or the acquisition of, of many things must be bad. And, you know, we don't take into a context that it often was zero-sum because it was about exploitation. It wasn't uh, market economy exchange. And obviously, there, there can be exploitation now in, in our world today, but there was far, it was far less it was far less the case that it was market economy way way back then. No question, and um, I think if we read the um, parables of Jesus and his teachings, particularly again in the Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the Synoptic Gospels, where there's much more of an emphasis in his teachings on wealth than say in John, that it, it's really important to understand that first century Roman Palestinian context to understand not only about wealth, but debt and taxes and how Jesus just taps into the everyday life of those he's, um, who are among his hearers to connect with them. But to understand um, his teaching there, you really have to understand what's going on in the first century Roman world, how a zero-sum game sort of pervaded uh, the mindset of many people because of the exploitation uh, in some cases, because the uh, wealthier people, as I say, the publicans, and there was a tax gathering system where you paid for the right to collect taxes um, from Rome, and then you went out and just grabbed as much as you can could from uh, the peasants and others of uh, the poor in first century Roman Palestine. That would naturally be a kind of mindset of uh, of concern about exploitation. Uh, having said that, I do think it is important to recognize that when Jesus teaches on the parable of the tares and wheat that there are some warnings about the spiritual hazards associated with excess wealth, particularly where we neglect the stewardship, the responsibility we have to share with others, uh, again, in a, in a non-coercive fashion, in a voluntary fashion, through church, through uh, NGOs and other ways. Uh, that has to be recognized as well. The economic outlook that many Christian anti-capitalists, and, and I don't want to 
pit them as 100% anti-capitalist, but they're very critical of modern day capitalism. They often seem to, when, when you when you start debating economics and you start getting into like just that aspect of what exactly is going on in the economy and here's how we think you're wrong in your assessment of what's actually happening, they seem to reply, and this has just been my experience in a number of ways, mm-hmm. that it's just all Keynesian economics. Like that's their embrace, like they've embraced that. And I've actually had one person who's incredibly intelligent, has written books, and he's not, I mean, he's kind of like the Jim Wallace side of the of the spectrum there. Mm-hmm. And he he's kind of like, well, yeah, I've studied all this and I've, you know, Keynes has more to offer than Mises does or something like that. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, it, t- it seems to me that Keynesianism is more in the consumer side of the, the approach to economics than anything. Well, ultimately, of course, Keynes, uh, as his um, remedy for the problems of um, being far below full employment, not only in his own Britain, but for other Western market economies in the midst of the 1930s Great Depression, called for uh, indirectly boosting uh, consumer spending by massive increases in governmental spending, particularly uh, at the, uh, for the U.S., the federal level. And, and through a kind of multiplier effect, the notion of Keynes and the Keynesians who followed him would be that would encourage greater consumer spending. So the sort of the irony there is that, yes, the remedy, the Keynesian remedy is more spending, less saving. There's a paradox of thrift. Thrift ultimately is damaging to an economy, especially that has a very large, as we say, recessionary gap or a big gap from full employment. And so we should encourage much more spending. And uh, actually, there's a bent. Uh, if you go back and look at Keynes and the Bloomsbury Group that he was associated with, in opposition to at least sort of the Protestant uh, emphasis um, coming out of the Reformation and, and later Puritan values on savings, on a future orientation, of saving now to build your enterprise and provide the capital for growth. Those were older Victorian values that the Bloomsbury Group that Keynes was associated with in the early 20th century deliberately shunned. We should avoid those. And uh, we should look forward to a time if we have uh, the ability to fine-tune the economy and government spends adequately that we can return to full employment, but through a lot of spending on material goods. Hi, this is Carrie Baldwin of MereLiberty.com and a contributor here at the Libertarian Christian Institute. If you haven't heard, I'm debating Walter Block on the question of whether a woman has the right to evict or abort her fetus at any time during her pregnancy. This debate will be hosted by the Soho Forum at 3 p.m. on Sunday, December 8th at the Subculture Theater in New York City. Tickets for this event range from $12 to $24. Seating is limited and will likely sell out. Register now to reserve your seat. You can buy tickets at thesohoforum.org. To hear more about my position, you can visit my website at mereliberty.com slash abortion. So let's let's kind of shift gears. It's probably a good segue to talk about spending here. And, you know, we're all, I mean, in many senses, we're all consumers. We have to consume things, like sometimes literally, like we eat food and we go through uh, goods you know, on a, on a pretty regular basis and we use things. I mean, some things we have last long time, but other times we use things. So when we think about spending, we can't ignore the fact that we consume. And I think one of the critiques that a lot of people have about consumerism isn't always about that we spend money and, and they may have some concerns about how we spend money, but it's that 
and, and again, this is like shifting the blame in a way to big business or business that does marketing. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's all about like, we're u- losing our freedom, even though, oh, we're kind of, you know, sort of sovereign or whatever, you know, we kind of lose our freedom as consumers because we're being manipulated by, by marketing. I'll, I'll give you an example. The, the day that I actually read your, your chapter in, in the book, Counting the Cost, I, when I was done, I got, got on my computer and I decided to write a few things down and my email notification came up and it was from Audible and it was the daily deal. It was four bucks. Uh-huh. And I was like, oh, that looks really good. And I bought it. It took me all of about two minutes. Now, one could say, and, and I didn't need to. It wasn't a need. It was an interest. It's a 10-hour book, and it will probably enhance my life. I don't know yet. I haven't started listening to it yet, but it'll probably enhance my life. And yet, at the same time, I could have spent that $4 elsewhere. I could have saved the $4. I could have had a more meaningful experience. I could have taken my daughters out for ice cream and sat with them and done something a lot more meaningful than you know listening to this not-needed audiobook. Okay, And so what happened was marketing, an email that I got for the Daily Deal, uh, has changed my sort of interests to do something that's slightly less healthy or maybe very less healthy, depending on the situation. Well, and, and I, well, I like that example. Um, let's reflect on that a little bit. Um, I think there's no question that Audible and, and uh, whichever um, firm you might want to think of, whether they sell over product or, um, in cyberspace or it's a brick and mortar store one walks into is targeting an audience and they're aiming um they may be aiming at folks that uh, like to buy on uh, more online and and uh are involved in podcasts to work with audible or it might be another form of audience whether it's teen preteen, and so forth but the question is of course what one does with that information once you've learned about audible they provided that information how does the consumer respond to that and I think there's no question there's an informational content that's important for the rational consumer. There's an emotional content and a persuasive element to advertising. Ultimately, uh, being made in the image of God, we think about what it means to have the Imago Dei, the image of God. We're called to be uh, discerning and sort through the information we have, reflect on, as you mentioned, the opportunity costs. If I use my resources for the Audible book, what am I foregoing as a different opportunity? In that sense, we, uh, the consumer, we might say, uh, to use economists and social science language, is uh, sovereign. But at the same time, I'm not doubting the uh, important impact the billions of dollars spent on advertising. I just say, let's turn that around and look at that the benefits from that uh, from another side. Firms want to establish their brand. But... Brands uh, aren't merely a means of making everyone buy in a kind of homogeneous fashion the very same product. Brands uh, can be a way for firms to uh, innovate. Uh, They've got the consumer's eye or ear, if you will, and they can try new products that appeal to a wider variety of consumer tastes. And if we really have a competitive market economy, firms are being pushed always to innovate and offer differing variations on products variations, or they're not going to make it. And it could be from the mundane that Burger King is now offering tacos to the the much higher end of what uh, a Lincoln or Mercedes offering with voice-activated uh, features in your automobile. Again, uh, I think we need to recognize the 
the implications of being made in the image of God, the creativity that comes with that, and the calls for us to be rational and discerning with uh, the marketing efforts uh, and the advertising efforts that come our way. You know, you talk about innovation, and, you know, Deirdre McCluskey has written that it used to be the case that innovation was not something that was looked at positively. And part of the reason we have such an abundant world is that the the change in rhetoric and the belief about such things changed and that pursuing something that we would call innovative, which in a way I would say everybody, both anti-consumerist, anti-capitalist, you know, whatever, we, we often embrace the idea of innovation at this, at, in this stage at capitalism. Even if you're anti-capitalist, you don't, you know, novel things that improve the plight of the poor, that improve the plight of everybody are not, not typically denounced. Um, you know, in, in, in and of themselves. So we have this world of abundance in part because we have innovation. And I think there's a, there's obviously a lesson to learn there with respect to, you know, what (laughs) they need to be grateful for where we've gotten. Like there's so many innovative things that are helping the poor. There are so many innovative things that are helping those who, uh, you, you know, at this point, like, not necessarily poor, but like poor middle class and like our lives are immensely better and the net, the net benefit of, of this, this world and the capitalism that we have is of course, you know, that, that we're all better off. And so I'm often puzzled. Maybe you can speak a little bit to this is like, why are people rejecting this abundance of natural, not abundance of natural resources, but our application of the resources that we have. Because, you know, I, some people say, oh, well, you were just lucky to be born in a, you know, in a, in an age or a location on the world, in the world that, that is fruitful and, and abundant. And I say, you know what, I look at that as a blessing. You know, we can say lucky or whatever, but like, to me, it's a blessing to have a world where when we have free trade, we, we get abundance. It's not, it's not a surprise to me that that's the way God set it up. Well, uh, yeah, it's a very interesting question, and um, there are those who uh, critique uh, not just innovation, but the fact that there is a provision of multiplicity of styles and variations on product uh, there that has too much choice. And there's certainly those who come out of uh, both economics and psychology or mesh those disciplines uh, that argue that uh, we live in a range of too much information and too much choice, and it's dizzying uh, consumers. And um, at the same time, I I would think about that critique to say, I think there's a lot to McCloskey's argument in that trilogy, bourgeois dignity, bourgeois equality. And we've written on, uh, in fact, edited a symposium on that in Faith and Economics, the journal, the Association of Christian Economists. Again, coming back to um, the... um, place that we're in as Christians today, we do have a different kind of challenge in a world of affluence than, say, the Christian of the first century. And we, as we read the scriptures, we, we ask different kinds of questions about an excess of choice. Uh, at the same time, it strikes me, um, we have to return to this notion of, of, of the, the importance emphasized in Holy Scripture of uh, stewardship, that innovation is an expression of creativity. And uh, we should celebrate that just as Jesus celebrated being um, uh, material abundance. He had he ate with uh, those whose society uh, rejected, uh, celebrated uh, with sinners and uh, publicans, but at the same time told us to be responsible with our 
resources. So innovation done uh, responsibly, we have to be discerning about that. We have to be discerning as consumers about it. And uh, if we feel like we are uh, inundated with too many choices, we have ways to um, restrict ourselves. We, we were called at times to go and reflect and uh, w- uh, withdraw. We're called it uh, a spiritual discipline is fasting. That one removes themselves from the excess of uh, a temptation that might come with gluttony. So I think there's this, again, this idea that being a responsible steward means uh, celebrating innovation and creativity, but being discerning about it. Yeah, I mean, I can turn off those those email notifications from Audible. I don't have to see the daily deals. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> there's a way to yeah. there's a way to turn that off. Yeah, and and then how we think about uh, how we teach our kids and we encourage others uh, and these things is part of that too. I think. Yeah, um, talk a little bit about Luke 12 and your understanding of Jesus's assessment of what was happening with the with the rich man and his storing up of possessions. I, I think your take on it is uh, is poignant for for the way in which we think about storing up wealth uh, because it's not inherently wrong. There's something else going on there. Yes, and so in Luke 12 verses 13 to 21, often depicted as the rich fool, the story that Jesus uh, tells, who hoards his possessions because he's got a bountiful crops and he builds larger barns barns to store all these possessions. And I think as one reads through that, um, it's interesting that uh, if you look at it carefully, there's, again, a sense in which there's uh, something to be celebrated and the productivity of the fertile land and the bounty of the crop that's going on here. But also there's this concern that the person that Jesus is describing here has accounted for himself by laying up many goods and saying that I can take my ease and eat and drink and be merry, that uh, there's a kind of uh, tyranny they've succumbed to here that uh, they place their security in the material possessions themselves and unwittingly thinking that they're rich are not rich towards God because uh as Jesus reports, God tells this person, you fool, uh, this very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you've prepared? So is the man, Jesus says, who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. And I think in the context of Luke particularly, this particular gospel, not only here, but as he teaches uh, elsewhere uh, the story of the rich man and Lazarus, that he's emphasizing we've got to be aware of what comes with those material possessions, the responsibility to not place our uh, security in them, but to be aware of our surroundings, be aware of those who have less uh, than those among us. In uh, that passage, and then uh, further on in Luke 16, it's the rich man's ignorance of the beggar Lazarus who's lying at his door. It's not his uh, sin of owning possessions or enjoying them but it's in his use of them and putting his weight of trust in them that uh, Jesus is warning his disciples about. How do you advise Christians to exercise stewardship? Uh, You describe it in in your chapter in the book, uh, exercise careful stewardship, because it's more than just critiquing the sins. It's also being proactive with the wealth that we have. And I'm going to use the word wealth there kind of in quotes, because all of us, 
anybody who could be listening here, you may not think of yourself as wealthy, but you do have resources and talents and skills that can be put to use even in small measure. You know, as Christians, we, we don't believe that you have to be wealthy to be, you know, worth to have things worth giving. So just in the, in the sense that as Christians, we exercise stewardship, you've kind of mentioned a few things throughout this conversation. Do you have any, um, any advice for Christians, you know, wanting to be thoughtful about it? What kind of questions should we be asking uh, when we make, you know, decisions, buying decisions, giving decisions, those kinds of things? Yes, I think uh, you raised some um, important, uh, valuable points uh, here. And particularly as we think about sort of our own personal finance and uh, use of stewardships, Um, particularly as I think about a Western Christian where our average standard of living per capita GDP in the U.S. is you know, um, for some countries, 10 times larger, uh, in some cases, 100 or up to 500 times larger, the poorest countries in sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, but really for any Christian, uh, in, at least in the Western world, especially it's about uh, being aware of uh, what comes with our material abundance, being aware of the needs of those in uh, the church we've covenanted and uh, joined in our, our community. Uh, it's sad to me um, to see that reported among uh, the evangelical world that the average level of giving is in the neighborhood at the, at the most two to three percent of income. And um, I'm not necessarily making a case here for the literal 10% Christian tithe. That's a whole other discussion. But it is just sad to see um, uh, the need, I'll just say, for being aware of uh, what's going on not only in our church, but in our community, how you can address that. As you say, not only with um, the material resources of income we have, but the time we have, the talents we have uh, to, um, if I'm a Christian business person, how do I help others around me uh, find their own way, their talents to perhaps start their own business, to employ them. If I find those who are really indigent and the, um, New Testament's way it depicts the poor, that's really someone who's really destitute. How can I find ways to lift them up? And uh, how can I find the, uh, implement the model, if I'm a Christian business person, from the gleanings from the poor, from the Old Testament, to uh, share out of my uh, surplus with others? So it's being aware. I think it's being cognizant, uh, especially in the local area. We have a responsibility globally, but I would say first, Primarily, it's to our local church and community being cognizant uh, of how to think more broadly about how I might use my talents uh, uh, in that community. Well, that's all great. Ed, you are doing some research on the value of property rights uh, from a Christian perspective in contract enforcement in the developing world. That's kind of what I read in your bio. Tell us a little bit about this project and some of the things that you're working on, because the and, and I'll and I'll kind of tie this in here a little bit because one of the critiques I've heard of capitalism is that our world is based on this theory of property rights that doesn't come from the Bible. Um, you know, the the Lockean sort of you know mixture labor and it's yours kind of kind of uh, approach, and that if we really you know that's so the story goes if we were really use the Bible as our foundation, uh, we wouldn't have such a strong property rights in the way that we do sort of mentality. Yes, and uh, so I have currently uh, moved into some thinking about the importance of property rights and, and contracts, uh, basis of contracts and what we call an economics transactions costs. 
for the poor, for the um, developing world, poor particularly. And how property rights are relevant And uh, here is, uh, I, I would speak to what you mentioned there. Uh, I don't subscribe to property rights on a Lockean kind of foundation that our labor mixed in is the basis of property rights. I think they're, it's grounded in the, um, candidly, the Decalogue, the Eighth Commandment of the Decalogue, that uh, you shall not steal, that being created in God's image, we're endowed with resources. He calls us to take and use and be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with the production and the value from them. There's a value added in uh, what we do in um, creation that's there evident from Genesis 4 with the creation of tools and music and the early civilization that's evident there. And in the 21st century world, whether it's in uh, fashioning software, starting an enterprise and NGO that uh, uh, helps uh, in agriculture or textiles or a whole range of different products. There's a value added uh, that we express in creativity that's important with property rights. Ultimately, God's the ultimate owner of all creation. We are, uh, the property resources we have are leased from him. We're accountable for how we use them. Ultimately, we return to him. But uh, the parallel of talents, uh, I think, teaches us from Matthew 25 that we're accountable for how we take the resources given us, however much they are, uh, and multiply them and put them to productive use. And so what I'm interested in particularly is the way in which the poorest of the poor in the developing world, particularly I'm thinking of widows and those who have had their uh, land stolen from them, particularly the examples I'm interested in are sub-Saharan Africa, Uganda, for example, where uh, there are land grabs and um, the widow's uh, uh, property is taken from them, that introducing property rights becomes very important that are backed by a judicial system that uh, is based uh, in the rule of law and not of men, where judges can't be bribed by uh, those who have uh, seized property arbitrarily to rule against the widow. And uh, how do we, as Christians, uh, step into that situation? Uh, the work of an international justice mission and others of dealing with violence against the poor. Um, because ultimately, I see parallels from the Old Testament where property uh, is grabbed in, in, in Israel, as Isaiah describes in Isaiah 5 and Amos as well, where those who are um, uh, wealthy use the government, use the monarchy of Israel to help them grab land. I see some parallels with that. Uh, not exact parallels, but similarities uh, with what's happening in the developing world. And so this is what I'm looking at, is how property rights matter, because that's the basis for stewardship. Ultimately, if you don't have a right to property, how are you accountable for what you use for it, right? If it's all in common, mm. uh, how are we uh, accountable? And so that's why, that's how I would uh, uh, bring to bear a kind of scriptural perspective on that. Well, and, and now I think we have our reason for you to come back on for a future episode. Because <laughs> this is a very important topic. <laughs> <laughs> well, Doug, I appreciate that. Well, thank you for being on to talk to us about consumerism, Ed. I've, I've really enjoyed our conversation, and uh, thank you again. Thank you for having me, and I've appreciated very much our dialogue. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. 
If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. Hey, podcast listeners. Since you like listening to audio content, we wanted to let you know about a new audiobook titled Called to Freedom, Why You Can Be Christian and Libertarian. It's read by me, Jacqueline Isaacs, one of the contributing authors of the book, and every download helps to support the Libertarian Christian Institute. To learn more and to download the audiobook today, go to calltofreedombook.com.